Hello, and welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Well, folks, here we are, back for round two in the heart of Texas, where things are about to get even more peculiar and perplexing. In the last episode, we scratched the surface of the Waco incident, but hold on to your hats because this time we're going deeper. We're diving headfirst into the world of tear gas, fire, and fierce debates. This is the aftermath of the Waco siege, where the ashes have settled, but the embers still smolder. Get ready for a roller coaster ride of emotions and controversy as we dissect what happened when the dust finally cleared. This is Scarlet Tavern. Part two. Let's get into it. Of a series we did not was did not know was going to go into two parts, but well, this is probably one of the most defining, really one of the more defining government actions in the the nineties. I mean, who didn't know about Waco? Yeah. Um. All right. Well, let's jump right into it. So on April fourteenth. David Koresh released a letter to his lawyer, Dick Diggerin, what would that would prove to be his last communication with the outside world. In it, he claimed to be writing down an interpretation of the seven seals of the Book of Revelation, promising to exit the compound as soon as it was completed. In it, he says, I want the people of this generation to be saved. I am working night and day to complete my final work of the writing out of these seals. I thank my father. He has finally granted me the chance to do this. It will bring new light and hope to many, and they will not have to deal with me, the person. I will demand the first manuscript of the seals be given to you. Many scholars and religious leaders will wish to have copies for examination. I will keep a copy with me. As soon as I can see that people like Jim Tabor and Phil Arnold have a copy, I will come out, and then you can do your thing with this beast." This letter sparked immediate disagreement within the FBI. While some saw it as a breakthrough, others ridiculed it, suspecting it to be a delay tactic designed by Koresh, designed to buy Koresh time to prepare a violent confrontation. FBI consulted psychologist Marie Moran, Mirren of Syracuse University to understand Koresh's mental state. After examining this and four other letters by Koresh, Mirren wrote in an April 15th report that Koresh exhibited all the hallmarks of a rampant, morbidly virulent paranoia, concluding, I do not believe that there is in these writings any better or at least certain hope for an early ending to the siege. Um, so the, the issue with this is you're, you can't just go from a psychological standpoint when we're talking about this because you're not just dealing with somebody who has people barricaded. You're dealing with a religious zealot. Um, yeah. And of course, again, I'm not religious in the normal sense, but, um, most psychologists, they believe in science over faith. So, to bring in a psychologist to look at this man and 
who was no matter what going to say, oh, yeah, he's paranoid. You probably, if you were going to bring in a psychologist, you probably should have also given it to Jim Tabor and Phil Arnold and gotten their opinions as well. I mean, it also should point out the fact, I mean, this is somebody who is a psychiatrist, a psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, um, has not talked to David Koresh. Correct. There's no talking to him. They're just given a series of letters and say, what do you think? And now, obviously, I'm sure this person, this Murray Marin or whatever, uh, we got a lot of, it, we got a, a lot of peculiar name people. Exactly. A lot of, a lot of peculiar name people in this whole situation. But um, that being said, it's, they, they, they haven't talked to David Crush. I want to talk to him. The only people who are talking to him are the FBI negotiators. And it's very interesting that I would, everybody who's making these assumptions about David Koresh, and keep in mind, everybody, I am not defending David Koresh. I don't, I've read a bunch about him and research for this and just my own research in general because I'm just, uh, uh, I like reading about this stuff. Um, I don't see very many redeeming qualities about David Koresh as a person. Um, I'm sorry, but I don't really approve of somebody trying to, in my opinion, sexually exploit your followers, um, like trying to cuckold, you know, your follower, your male followers by sleeping with their wives, which is exactly what he did. Um, but at the same time, the people who talked to David were the ones who were saying, we're making progress. We're getting through to him. Everybody was saying, like, nope, he's gone crazy. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna throw down, and we're gonna have to shoot it out with him. Are people who really didn't talk to him? Yeah. Um. Now, this is where Janet Reno went wrong. Um, Amongst other places where she went wrong. Yeah. Newly appointed U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno approved recommendations by the FBI hostage rescue team to mount an assault after being told that conditions were deteriorating and that children were being abused inside the compound. Again, no evidence of abuse, at least at this time. Um, Reno made the FBI's case to President Clinton, recalling the April 19, 1985, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, CSA siege in Arkansas, uh, which we may do that one at some point because that's an interesting one which was ended without loss of life by a blockade without a deadline. President Clinton suggested similar tactics against the Branch Davidians. Reno countered that the FBI hostage rescue team was tired of waiting, that the standoff was costing a million dollars per week, that the Branch Davidians could, no could hold out longer than the CSA, and that the chances of child sexual abuse and mass suicide were imminent. Clinton later recounted, finally, I told her that if she thought it was the right thing to do, she should go ahead. Now, I'm not a Clinton fan at all, Me but neither. this is one of the things he got right. He should, he should have stuck with his guns and told them no. Yeah, I mean... He was right yeah. at the beginning to want to hold it out like they did with the CSA. They can't go anywhere. Yeah. Eventually, their supplies are going to run out. I believe at some point they did cut the power and they did they cut did, the yeah. water to there so at some point they were gonna have to come out they were eating MREs at this point so 
uh, well, I'll tell you right now, folks, just from personal experience, I went about a month and a half of eating nothing but that, and I was ready to desert the U.S. Air Force. Yeah, they do. Like, so I, I, can only... I, I like MREs. Like, I'll eat MREs, but after a while, okay. they get old. They After a while, you can't differentiate between the cardboard that they're yeah. placed in and the actual food. I think I actually one time did eat some cardboard. Especially, um, especially uh, if you get the shitty stuff. And somehow like he, the Caleb had... Like the breakfast ones. Yeah, and somehow Caleb in our D&D campaigns, you brought MREs in there. I, I don't know. I did. God. I did. God. Oh, just wait till campaign two. Oh, I can't wait. Um, I'm going to make an entire book for it. Um, but in this case, I don't think they would have held out much longer. And again, this isn't... Whether there was mass suicide, again, I don't think they were ever done mass suicide. All no. evidence seemed to be that. Now, I can't discount it, but at the same time, I don't think this was in Jonestown, like what we saw in, um, in our in our previous episode when we covered Jonestown. Uh, this this is a night and day situation. I think again, the government is. Seeing this is a cult. They all they know is Jonestown. They're like, oh, they'll kill themselves. It's like, not every cult is gonna kill themselves. Dude. Yeah. Um, over the next several months, Reno's reason for approving the final tear gas attack varied from her initial claim that the FBI hostage rescue team had told her that Koresh was sexually abusing children and beating babies, which they later denied evidence of child abuse during the standoff. To her claim that Linda Thompson's unorganized militia of the United States was on the way to Waco, was on the way to Waco either to help Koresh or to attack him. The assault took place on April 19th, 1993. Because the Branch Davidians were heavily armed, the FBI hostage rescue team's armed arms included 50 caliber rifles and armored combatant engineering vehicles. The CEVs used explosives to punch holes in the walls of buildings of the compound so they could pump in CS gas, which is tear gas, and try to force the Branch Davidians out without harming them. The stated plan called for increasing amounts of gas to be pumped in over two days to increase pressure. Officially, no armed assault was to be made. Regarding the initial plan to tear gas the building, the spokesperson of the FBI, Carl Stern, claimed that input was taken from psychologists, psychiatrists, behavioral specialists, as well as scientific and medical stuff, quote-unquote. Loudspeakers were to be used to tell Branch Davidians that there would be no armed assault and ask them to not fire on the vehicles. According to the FBI, the hostage rescue team agents had been permitted to return any incoming fire, but no shots were fired by federal agents on April 19th. When several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI hostage rescue team's response was only to increase the amount of gas being used. An anonymous official would claim that the reason for the FBI's increased aggression was Bureau audio listening equipment inside the compound. This claim was neither corroborated or denied by FBI Director William Sessions. Now. Okay, the Branch Davidians, yes, they are well armed. Just because they're well-armed does not justify 50 caliber rounds. For those yeah, that don't know, God. 50 caliber rounds are typically armor-piercing rounds. Like, as in, can go through a fucking tank. Um, yeah. 
a 50 caliber round in a person, it will, if you shoot somebody in the head, it will literally blow their head off. So using 50 caliber rounds, that's a little excessive. Everything else, uh, it's standard issue. Yeah, I mean, God, it seemed really like a lot of people were jumping to conclusions on here. We gotta get in there, pump, and get there. Go, go, go! It's like, <sighs> like you're you're pumping tear gas in, and is... you're 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 told not to fire on them. So why even do this? You might as well just wait. It really seemed like... Sorry for all the, the pe noise, people. Oh, sorry. Um, it really seemed like the FBI hostage negotiating team, which I, as we've seen, are the same people who were involved that were Ruby Ridge. There's really no way to other put it. They seem very authoritarian. Like, they really believed in the big, long arm of the government coming in there and quashing any kind of dissent against them. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of those right-wing things, like, you know, who, who looks at this stuff as, like, they're heroes. It's like, no, I don't. But at the same time, I'm looking at the, the, the guy, the, everyone in charge of the FBI hostage negotiating team, the tactical side, really seem to genuinely believe I have to go in and kill these people because you have challenged the U.S. government. Yeah, that's what really this is. This is what I'm seeing, and it's like, do you do realize that at least half of the people that you're going up against are women and children? Yeah, but you don't seem to care that I have to kill. I we can't let the United States be challenged and have this. Uh, this is an affront to our authority, dude. They're in a compound in the middle of a Texas prairie. What are you doing? If you look at any nowadays, like um, after the Bundy Ranch incident, uh, which uh, we, we will probably cover at some point, even though that's a little, it's still very recent, but it's also something that's in actually living memory. But um, nowadays, when some of these anti-government types try to do takeovers, most of the time now they do, they just wait them out. Yeah. They just sit them out, wait them out. They get bored. They don't give them the attention that they want, and they um, just eventually they give up because they realize that they're just sitting around doing nothing and nobody's paying attention to it. But here we have, let's shoot 50 caliber rounds and pump tear gas into a building full of women and children. Yeah. <clears throat> so... The FBI hostage rescue team delivered 40 millimeter fair brand CS gas rounds via M79 grenade launchers. Now, M79 grenade launchers are standalone grenade launchers. They're not M203s, which are on the bottom of guns. M79s are specifically grenade launchers. They are handheld, meant to only launch grenades. Uh, very early in the morning, FBI hostage rescue team fired two military M651 CS gas rounds at the Branch Davidian construction site. Around mid-morning, the FBI hostage rescue team began to run low on 40mm ferret CS rounds and asked Texas Ranger Captain David Burns for tear gas rounds. The tear gas rounds procured from Company F in Waco turned out to be unusable pyrotechnic 
and will return to company F office afterwards. Basically, unused pyrotechnic means that they were duds. They tried to fire them. They either would not fire or the tear gas did not explode. Um, happens all the time. Uh, 40 millimeter munitions recovered by the Texas Rangers at Waco included dozens of plastic ferret model SGA 400 liquid CS rounds, two metal M60, M651E1 military pyrotechnic tear gas rounds, two metal Nico pyrotechnic sound and flash grenades, and parachute illumina illumination flares. After more than six hours, no brain civilians had left the building, sheltering instead in an underground concrete block room known as the bunker within the building or using gas masks. All of this, you're pumping out hundred dollars to $200,000 worth of munitions. And also, yeah, and also what it tells me is just looking at the various types of ammunition, this seemed like a very slap together kind of operation. It like it's bad enough you're you're going at it full you know full bore at these at this. You, you, you did you just not have enough rounds like hey, let's just find what we can what we can find. Yeah. And I like, was like, wow, you have no you reason to have parachute illumination flares. What 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 good would a what good would they use? I've used these before. Yeah. What what good are these in a seat? For, for a those that don't know, they are exactly what they sound like. You fire them into the air, and they light basically light up the sky so that you can see anything incoming. I I may or may not have accidentally shot one into the trees line. I apologize, first sergeant. Um, but yeah. So at around noon three fires broke out almost simultaneously in different parts of the building and spread quickly footage of the blaze was broadcast live by television crews the government maintains the fires were deliberately started by the branch davidians some branch davidian survivors and other experts maintain the fires were accidentally or deliberately started by the assault possibly by the types of pyrotechnic rounds used by the fbi again these illumination flares that were shot off they burn white hot they are extremely flammable and they will catch pretty much anything on fire especially in a place that has so many munitions as this place the, there's no way the branch davidian set these on fire this was these rounds there was also believed that branch davidians again these are survivalists they have gasoline diesel there was Supposedly, that the branch of Indians had planned to use like some like small things that like okay, if we light a little fire here, they can't get into this point. However, as Caleb just said, you're just shooting you're just shooting pyrotechnics into a building where you don't know what's in that building. Exactly, you don't know where it is. These people, they, for all you know, I mean. In all likelihood, probably they hit a, a, a barrel of gas or a crate of ammo, and it just got out, they got out of hand because, hey, they're all sheltering in place because they've got tear gas and they can't move. Yeah. Um, now, just a fair warning, we are going to talk about some of the deaths, which do include children for the faint of heart. Um, only nine people left the building during the fire. The remaining Branch Davidians, including the children were either buried alive by rubble, suffocated, or shot. 
Many were killed by smoke or carbon monoxide inhalation and other causes as fire engulfed the building. According to the FBI, Steve Schneider, Koresh's top aide, shot and killed Koresh and then himself. In all, 76 people died. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition was found in the bunker storage room. The Texas Rangers arson investigator report assumes that many of the occupants were either denied escape from within or refused to leave until escape was not an option. It also mentions that the structural debris from the breaching operations on the west end of the building could have blocked a possible escape route through the tunnel system. An independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering concluded that the compound residents had sufficient time to escape the fire if they had so desired. So this here tells you that the Branch Davidians chose to stay in there even when it was on fire. Come hell or high water, they were dying with David Koresh. We assume. I like. I mean, part of me. I don't know. Well, you just you I just had of, an independent yeah. investigation. Yeah. That was well, not part like of the said, FBI he, saying that they had sufficient time to escape if they wanted to. Yeah. I also yeah. It, but as I said, it probably also at some point they could have. I don't know. Could have gotten. You're right. You could have gotten out, but maybe there was something else that blocked them. But I don't know. I, just, I just think it's David. I just find influence. it. I, yeah. He was an influential person. Yeah. Yeah. So much so that mothers were willing to let their children die in a burning exactly. fire. That's just wonderful. So autopsies of the dead revealed that some women and children found beneath a fallen concrete wall of a storage room died of skull injuries. U.S. Department of Justice report indicated that only one body had traces of benzene, one of the components of solvent dispersed CS gas, but that the gas insertions had finished nearly one hour before the fire had started, and that there was enough time for solvents to dissipate from the bodies of the Branch Davidians that had inhaled tear gas. Autopsy records also indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including Koresh, as well as five children under the age of 14. Three-year-old Dalen Gentz was stabbed in the chest. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believed the deaths were mercy killings by the Branch Davidians trapped in the fire with no escape. The expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel um, concluded that many of the gunshot wounds support self-destruction either by overt suicide, consensual execution, suicide by proxy, or less likely forced execution. Uh, basically, it was you either burn in this fire or we can all just shoot ourselves right now. And then they would have killed the children first. And then the women and then the men is usually how it would have been. I, I probably would have opted out. I Oh, I, I would have popped myself. I would have popped myself. Yeah. There, there's no way in hell I'm sitting there burning to death. Um, the new ATF director, John Magall, criticized several aspects of the ATF raid. <coughs> Magall made the Treasury Blue Book report on Waco required reading for the new agents. A 1995 Government Accountability Office report to the use of force by federal law enforcement agencies observed that on the basis of Treasury's report on the Waco operation and views of tactical operations, experts in ATF's own personnel 
ATF decided on October 1995 that dynamic entry would only be planned after all other options have been considered and began to adjust its training accordingly. Nothing remains of the buildings today other than concrete foundation components as the entire site was bulldozed two weeks after the end of the siege. Only a small chapel built years after the siege stands on the site. Now we're going to talk about the FBI adjustments, the trial and imprisonments of the Branch Davidians, its influence, and things like that. Um, so the Waco siege prompted the FBI to reevaluate its tactics and procedures. The agency made several adjustments in response to the criticism it faced. Firstly, there was a greater emphasis on crisis negotiation and peaceful resolutions, leading to increased training in the establishment of specialized negotiation teams. Secondly, the hostage rescue team underwent enhancements in terms of training, equipment, and coordination to improve their effectiveness in high-risk operations. Additionally, uh, interagency operation cooperation was emphasized to facilitate better coordination and information sharing among federal entities involved in complex operations. The FBI also recognized the value of intelligence gathering and analysis, leading to a focus of enhancing intelligence capabilities. Lastly, after action reviews were conducted and lessons learned were incorporated into the training programs to better, better prepare agents for future situations. Now, this is all 100% true. Um, having gone through a lot of these federal trainings, uh, Waco is a thing that still to this day is taught in the academy, um, in any federal academy you go to typically. Um, the interagency stuff uh, that typically it's done, um, FBI is not very good at it. Uh, marshals, however, are probably the best at interagency stuff. Um, as when we served warrants, we would notify local law enforcement, uh, even if to just help have extra bodies there in case. But for the most part, most of this is still in effect highly, highly. These HRTs, the these response teams are if you're part of the FBI HRT you're the best in the world their their SWAT team is like nothing else oh um, yeah so this they did major major adjustments uh, after Waco and unfortunately the nature of the beast is there's always stuff that's changing so there will always be adjustments um, unfortunately, you I mean, get what, into what a situation you don't you don't always know what's going to happen. I mean, one adjustment I would have made was the hurt the on scene HRT commander who led this tactically. I would have fired him. I think he did get fired. I, well, hopefully, I think he did um, get fired because, my, frankly, these are great changes and I'm glad that see and I'm glad that they still implement them and they learn from it. But you know, tactical situations like these are a scalp. Yeah. You know, surgically made when necessary. These guys welded it like it was a, a Louisville slugger over the head. Yeah. So the events at Mount Carmel spurred both criminal per, uh, prosecution and civil litigation. 
On August 3, 1993, a federal grand jury returned a superseding 10-count indictment against 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians. Grand jury charged, among other things, that the Branch Davidians had conspired to and aided and abetted in the murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. Government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 Branch Davidians according to a plea bargain. After a jury trial lasting nearly two months, the jury acquitted four of the Branch Davidians on all charges. Additionally, the jury acquitted all of the Branch Davidians on the murder-related charges, but convicted five of them on lesser charges, including aiding and abetting the voluntary manslaughter of federal agents. Eight Branch Davidians were convicted on firearms charges. The convicted Branch Davidians who received sentences up to 40 years were Kevin A. Whitecliffe, convicted of voluntary manslaughter and using a firearm during a crime, Jamie Castillo, convicted of voluntary manslaughter and using a firearm during a crime. Paul Gordon Fatta, convicted of conspiracy to possess machine guns and aiding Branch Davidian leader David Koresh in possessing machine guns. Reno's Lenny Avram, a British national, convicted of voluntary manslaughter and using a firearm during a crime. Graham Leonard Craddock, Australian national, so he's used to prison. Convicted of possessing a grenade and using or possessing a firearm during a crime. Brad Eugene Branch, convicted of voluntary manslaughter and using a firearm during a crime. Livingstone Fagan, British National, convicted of voluntary manslaughter and using a firearm during a crime. Ruth Riddle, Canadian National, convicted of using or carrying a weapon during a crime. And Catherine Schroeder, sentenced to three years after pleading guilty to a reduced charge of forcibly resisting arrest. Six of the eight Branch Davidians appealed both their sentence and their convictions. They raised a host of issues challenging the constitutionality of their prohibition on possession of machine guns, the jury instructions, and the district court's conduct of the trial, the sufficiency of the evidence, and the sentences imposed. The United States Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit vacated the defendant's sentences for use of machine guns, determining that the district court had made no finding that they had actively employed the weapons, but left the verdicts undisturbed in all other aspects in the United States v. Branch. Um, on remand, the district court found that the defendants had actively employed machine guns and resentenced five of them to substantial prison terms. The defendants again appealed. The Fifth, court circuit, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed. The Branch Davidians pressed the issue before the United States Supreme Court. Supreme Court reversed, holding the term machine gun and the relevant statute created an element of offense to be determined by a jury, rather than a sentencing factor to be determined by a judge, as had happened in the trial court. On September 19th, 2000, Judge Walter Smith followed Supreme Court's instructions and cut 25 years from the sentences of five convicted Branch Davidians and five years from the sentence of another. All Branch Davidians have been released from prison as of July 2007. So, all of this, basically, they're all convicted of murder or use of a firearm during a crime. Those all went through, for the most part, the machine guns... Those those were overturned because in order for the machine gun to be considered part of the crime, it you needed sufficient evidence that they were used. They didn't really have it. 
they said they had it then they didn't blah 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 so basically a lot of it was overturned a lot of them got released from prison yeah a lot of legalese there but yeah, yeah. um i'm i'm little surprised they got convicted but at the same time they see the government seemed to skin yeah. Well, as you can see, as you can see in there, the government really focused more on the weapon charges than any of the murder. Yeah. Um, I think they also learned their lesson from Ruby Ridge. Whereas uh, Randy Weaver, when he went to trial, he was promptly found not guilty because they said he used self-defense. Correct. Yeah. Um, and that's why they focused on the firearm charges because they wanted something that would stick. Um. <coughs> 33 British citizens were among the members of the Branch Davidians during the siege. 24 of them were among the 80 Branch Davidian fatalities in the raid of February 28th and the assault of April 19th, including at least one child. Two more British nationals who survived the siege were immediately arrested as material witnesses and imprisoned without trial for months. Derek Lovelock was held in McLennan County Jail for seven months, often in solitary confinement. Livingstone, Fagan, and a, another British citizen who was among those convicted and imprisoned says he received multiple beatings at the hands of correctional officers, particularly at Leavenworth. There, Fagan claims to have been doubled, uh, been doused inside a cell with cold water from a high-pressure hose, after which an industrial fan was placed outside the cell, blasting him with cold air. Fagan was repeatedly moved between at least nine different facilities. He was strip searched every time he took exercise, so he refused to exercise. Released and deported back to the UK in July 2007, he still retains his religious beliefs. Now, Fort Leavenworth, for those that don't know, is a military prison. Um, it's, But it's also used for civilians who have typically, typically done crimes against the country um a lot of a lot of people that are waiting to be moved for um terrorist acts and things like that they're held at leavenworth usually before they go to an undisclosed black site and disappear forever yep um but what they're doing to what they were doing to fagan that's exactly what happens to terrorists it's a um, little extreme there. Yeah, I'm just saying if, that from yeah. personal experience, but um, not that I mean, I'm not saying that I did this. I'm saying that I've seen this, but yeah, typically it's this treatment is done for terrorists because what people need to understand when you are not saying that Fagan or any of them are terrorists, they technically are not terrorists. Um, but when you are a terrorist, you have no rights. Not here, at least. You do not gain the rights of, of a normal U.S. citizen. Now, there are spe- special laws with the Uniform Code of Military Justice and things like that, which is typically why military members don't get involved when it comes to terrorist stuff. It's usually left to a three-letter agency um a (laughs) a certain three-letter agency but when you are a terrorist you no longer have rights you don't get your right to a phone call 
you don't get your right to uh, fair treatment and things like that because you did threaten our country. So things like dousing with water and the high with the high pressure hose and the industrial fans, that's done with terrorists all the time. Why it was done to Fagan, who knows? Uh, this is assuming we're to believe Fagan. Yeah, I mean this is this is his claims. So whether they're true or not, nobody knows. Because guess what? Uh, we we haven't we have a oath between each other that whether you're military or law enforcement that you have each other's backs. Yeah. So nobody nobody will talk about it. This isn't the kind of thing anyone talks about. And keep him and like you said, keep in mind this man just literally survived a siege where the federal government more just kind of killed all of his people that he cared for. So did he have a did he have an easy go in prison? I suspect not. Did they literally hit him with an industrial hose and uh, hit him see. with a cold fan and strip search him every night, every time not, he went out? The strip I, search, I'm not yes. A... Strip search, that's standard procedure. Okay, I didn't he, know that. I, he, I never he, did corrections. He is considered a high-risk inmate because of what happened. So, and because of his beliefs, he's willing to kill for his beliefs. So he would be now not necessarily strip searched, but he would be searched every time he was taken out for exercise and brought back. They just amplified it to a strip search just to humiliate him. So, but yes, it is, that is standard procedure in most places, especially in Leavenworth. You're, you gotta, what people need to understand is Leavenworth is think of your highest risk facility of a corrections and amplify that by 10. That is Leavenworth because it is a military installation. They're probably, he's probably mad. They didn't give him a spot of tea. Yeah, exactly. Fucking you people in England, you people. I'm just saying, keep throwing your tea in the sea. We love you. All of our viewers in England. We have a lot. Please direct. Yes, please direct, direct all, all your hate mail to Ben Don Edwards. <laughs> Damn it! No, um, bad enough. I've got all those other people at me now. I got to add the British. The the, the British. The people. British are coming. The British are coming. <laughs> uh, several of the surviving Branch Davidians, as well as more than a hundred family members of those who had died or were injured in the confrontation, brought civil suits against the United States government. Numerous federal officials the former governor of Texas, Ann Richards, and members of the Texas Army National Guard. They sought monetary damages under the Federal Tort Claims Act, Civil Rights Statutes, and the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, and Texas state law. The bulk of these claims were dismissed because they were insufficient as a matter of law or because the plaintiffs could advance no material evidence in support of them. The court, after a month-long trial, rejected the Branch Davidians' case. The court found that on February 28, 1993, the Branch Davidians initiated a gun battle when they fired at federal officers who were attempting to serve lawful warrants. This is completely accurate. This is standard operating procedure. They came there to serve lawful warrants. They opened fire. There goes that case. Um, ATF re agents returned gunfire to the building court ruled to protect themselves and other agents from death or serious bodily harm. 
The court found that the government's planning of the siege, i.e. the decisions to use tear gas against the branch Davidians, to insert the tear gas using military vehicles, and to admit specific planning for the possibility that a fire would erupt, was a discretionary function for which the government could not be sued. The court also found that the use of tear gas was not negligent. Further, even if the United States government were negligent by causing damage to the buildings before the fires broke out, thus either blocking escape routes or enabling the fires to spread faster, that negligence did not legally cause the plaintiff's injuries because the Branch Davidians started the fires. And this is all factual. Um, legally, everything was done by the book. Whether it, it was extreme and they should have done it is one thing. But by law, they followed the law to the letter. This is, at the time, standard operating procedure for all of this. Yeah. Like I said, we, we disagree on how they did it, but... They didn't do anything illegal. Um, the Branch Davidians appealed... They contended that the trial court judge, Walter S. Smith Jr., should have recused himself from hearing their claims on account of his relationship with defendants, defense counsel, and court staff, prior judicial determinations, and comments during the trial. The Fifth Circuit concluded that these allegations did not reflect conduct that would cause a reasonable observer to question Judge Smith's impartiality, and it affirmed the take-nothing judgment in Andrade versus Kojnacki. Um, basically they are saying that the judge, Walter Smith, what should have recused himself because he knew the defendants and the defense counsel. Well, guess what? You attacked a federal government. This federal government has done billions of cases under federal court in which you are now being tried so, yeah, this judge knows all of these people. In my hometown, I knew every judge. When you're a cop in in doing all of this stuff, you know the judges. It, he could recuse himself, but the next judge up is going to it's going to be the same thing. Probably, most likely, who knows. But I don't I mean, whatever the comments were he made, the judge made was one, it would probably, would have probably been the, the deciding factor. So, but. Obviously they weren't bad enough. Yeah. yeah. And it was probably something like, um, you guys get what you deserve or something like that. Something that is, anybody would say, but judges have to be careful. So, um, the press coverage of the Waco siege was criticized by some for its sensationalism and for providing a flat platform for David Koresh and his followers. Some journalists were accused of glamorizing Koresh and his beliefs, leading to concerns that the media attention may have unintentionally fueled the cult leader's uh, messianic complex and prolonged the standoff. The legal proceedings that followed were complex and involved charges ranging from firearms violations to conspiracy to commit murder. Several surviving Branch Davidians faced trial, and some were convicted and sentenced to lengthy prison terms. However, the trials themselves were also criticized by some who believed that the defendants that were fueled by the media did not receive a fair trial or that the government failed to fully uh, investigate its own actions during the siege. Now, 
The Waco siege raised concerns about potential government overreach and the infringement of individual rights. Some Americans saw the incident as a reflection of an increasingly powerful and intrusive federal government, leading to discussions about the limits of government authority and the protection of civil liberties. Roland Ballesteros, one of the agents assigned to the ATF door team that assaulted the front door, told Texas Rangers and Waco police that he thought the first shots came from the ATF dog team assigned to neutralize the Branch Davidian dogs, but later at the trial, he insisted that the Branch Davidian had shot first. The Branch Davidians also claimed that the ATF door team opened fire at the door and they returned fire in self-defense. An Austin Chronicle article noted long before the fire, the Davidians were discussing the evidence contained in the doors. During the siege, in a phone conversation with FBI Steve Schneider, one of Koresh's main confidants, told FBI agents that the evidence from the front door will clearly show how many bullets and what happened. Um, so, the here's the thing. Now we're getting into the crazy, the conspiracy stuff. Yes, here's the thing. Should you have had a dog team? No. Um, sending somebody in there to neutralize the dogs. By doing that, you mean shoot them and kill them. Now, have I tased a dog? Yes. I've tased a dog before. A dog has attacked me, I've tased him. I've never shot and killed a dog, but I have tased a dog. Um, it works. Now again, back then they did not have tasers. So, you could pepper spray a dog, dog's fight or flight's gonna do. So, eventually, if they would have released the dogs... Now, there's no guarantee that they were gonna release the dogs. But if they would have, would they have attacked the agents? Yes. But does that justify going and shooting the dogs? Not necessarily. It's not what I would have done. I would have told everybody, hey, there's dogs in there. Keep an eye out. And if it comes to it, you can put the dogs down. Um, the Then the rest of it, it's just a he said, she said of who fired first. It really is. I mean... It's Han shot first. <laughs> I mean... It's a tough situation. The agent's like, "Yeah, I think you. I think it. Uh, it happened there. You don't know where it happened. Your mm -hmm. your your mind is focused on one thing. Stress. You know everything. You you hear. You you don't think you hear everything and calm down. I don't see. Could the ATF have shot first? We will never know. We're never really gonna know. We weren't there. On top of that. Um." Nobody's going to admit that. It's like you said before. They're going to keep quiet about that. Who's going to admit that they shot first and opened fire? Yeah. On the ATF side, at least. Or any side, really. Because then that just shoots... every Everybody's claim goes out the window. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Houston attorney Dick DeGuren, uh, who went inside Mount Carmel during the siege, keep in mind that this is the attorney for the Branch Davidians, uh, testified at the trial that protruding metal on the inside of the right-hand entry door made it clear that the bullets, bullet holes were made by incoming rounds. DeGuren also testified that only the right-hand entry door had bullet holes, while the left-hand entry door was intact. The government presented the left-hand entry door at the trial, claiming that the right-hand entry door had been lost. The left-hand the left door contained numerous bullet holes, 
made by both outgoing and incoming rounds. Texas Trooper Sergeant David Keyes testified that he witnessed two men loading what could have been the missing door into a U-Haul van shortly after the siege had ended, but he did not see the object himself. Michael Cattle, the lead attorney for the Branch Davidians wrongful death lawsuit, explained, The fact that the left-handed door is in the condition it's in tells you the right-hand door was not consumed by the fire. It was lost on purpose by somebody. He offered no evidence to support this allegation, which has never been proven. However, fire investigators stated that it was extremely unlikely that the steel right door could have suffered damage in the fire much greater than did the steel left door, and both doors would have been found together. The right door remains missing, and the entire site was under close supervision by law enforcement officials until the debris, including both doors, had been removed. Again, this is your conspiracy theories. Somebody on one side took the door or not. That door could have changed a lot of stuff, but at this point, it's just that he said, she said. In the weeks preceding the raid, Rick Allen Ross, a self-described cold expert and deprogrammer affiliated with the Cold Awareness Network, appeared on major networks such as NBC and CBS in regard to Koresh. Ross later described his role in advising authorities about the Davidians in Koresh and what actions should be taken to end the siege. He was quoted as saying that he was consulted by the ATF and he contacted the FBI on March 4, 1993, requesting that he be interviewed regarding his knowledge of Colts in general and the Branch Davidians in particular. The FBI reports that it did not rely on Ross for advice whatsoever during the standoff, but that it did an interview and receive input from him. Ross also telephoned the FBI on March 27th and March 28th, offering advice about negotiating negotiation strategies suggesting that the FBI attempt to embarrass Koresh by informing other members of the compound about Koresh's faults and failures in life in order to convince them that Koresh was not the prophet they had been led to believe. ATF also contacted Ross in January 1993 for information about Koresh. Several writers have documented the Cold Awareness Network's role about the government's decisions, decision-making concerning Waco. Mark McWilliams notes that several studies have shown how self-styled cold experts like Ross, uh, anti-cult organizations like the Cold Awareness Network, and disaffected Branch Davidian defectors like uh, Brialt played important roles in popularizing a harshly negative image of Koresh as a dangerous cult leader, portrayed as self-obsessed, egomaniacal, sociopathic, and heartless. Koresh was frequently characterized as either a religious lunatic who doomed his followers to mass suicide or a con man who manipulated religion for his own bizarre personal advantage. According to religious scholars Philip Arnold and James Tabor, who made an effort to help resolve the conflict, the crisis need not have ended tragically if only the FBI had been more open to religious studies and better able to distinguish between the dubious ideas of Ross and the scholarly expertise. In a New Yorker article in 2014, Malcolm Gladwell wrote that Arnold and Tabor told the FBI that Koresh needed to be persuaded of an alternative interpretation of the Book of Revelation, one that does not involve a violent end. They made an audio tape, which they played for Koresh, and which seemed to convince him. However, the FBI waited only three days before beginning the assault instead of an estimated two weeks for to Koresh for Koresh to complete a manuscript sparked by this alternative interpretation and then come out peacefully. 
An article by Stuart A. Wright, published in Nova Religio, discussed how the FBI mishandled the siege, stating that there is no greater example of misfeasance, misfeasance than the failure of the Federal Bureau of Investigation to bring about a bloodless resolution to the 51-day standoff. Some of Wright's major concerns about the operation include that the FBI officials, especially Dick Rogers, exhibited increasing impatience and aggression when the conflict could have been resolved by more peaceful negotiation. He mentions that Rogers said in an interview with the FBI that when we started depriving them, we were really driving people closer to him because of their devotion to him, which was different from what he said in the Department of Justice report. Um, so, and this goes back to what we said. If they would have gone the religious route, just kind of held off a little bit and let things play out, this may have ended peacefully. Yeah, I mean, and another thing also, the we as we said in the last episode, the tactics used just they didn't drive them apart. They were trying to undermine them. They were trying to drive everyone insane. They made everyone huddle together. They were they it was a they they really was a siege. You know, when the enemy is at your gate, you don't run for the hills when you're surrounded. You bunker down and you hold out. And that's exactly what they got. They made sure that they were never going to leave. And what did they do? Who who did they turn to? Their spiritual guru, David Koresh. So this is somebody, this is an operation that was run by people who had absolutely no idea what they were dealing with. They really didn't. And it shows. So here is my take. Here's what I would have done with the knowledge that I have. I would have done this. I would have waited it out to see if the religious side would have worked. You're already in this 51 days. What's another two weeks? Um, so I would have waited that two weeks and I w if things still would have not have de-escalated and not would have come would not have come out that's when I would get some sort of high-value tactical team. Um, your, your big thing is go into the dead of night, take that tact team, whether you're using SEALs, Rangers, whatever, send them in, eliminate key points. Yes, you may be killing a few Branch Davidians. But it would have been a lot less than what they dealt with. Take out a few key points. Separate them. Instead of bringing them together. Take out your quote-unquote guards. Boom, 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 boom. Cap try and capture David Koresh while he's sleeping. Because he sleeps. They all sleep. Cap capture him while he's sleeping. You eliminate him from the picture. Capture him take him out in quiet the whole thing would have been done yeah. that's what i would have done i mean how far i mean for me how far back to, can i go for to tell how i would have done well, um i if, mean i mean we're uh, i would say at this point we're at the fit you're right before the siege well right before first of all 
if I'm the ATF agent, the guy in charge of this, I the moment I found out from my undercover agent, which he did, they did say, hey, they know we're coming. I'm not going. First of all, even if, let's say, David Koresh had been smart, which, again, I still contend, if David Koresh had just told everybody, okay, everybody go into the cafeteria or the chapel, sit here and wait for them. They're coming. They're, they're here to execute a search warrant. Sit here. Don't do anything stupid. We have nothing to hide. And that would have been the end of it. But you didn't. So obviously, if I'm the ATF agent, as they were going in, it sucks. You're taking fire. You're taking casualties. But this is where the military comes in. Keep going. Keep going. You you outnumber him. You have the tactical knowledge. These aren't right. You're not storming a compound full of Delta Force operators. All right. These are. People of various ages, backgrounds that do not include the U.S. military, and yes, they, you. yeah, um, yes, they have guns, but you, I mean, they could have had artillery for all they for all the good it would have done them. They don't know how to fight back. Yes, some of them know how to use the guns, obviously, but they don't have a tactical awareness of how to fight off a heavily armed assault team coming, you know, literally banging down their door. So when the ATF fell back, it's like, oh, we got to fall back. You plan for failure. All right. You didn't bring enough ammo. You didn't go forward. You, you underestimated your opponent. And this is what the result was. Yeah. I would have immediate also. So that being said, now we're into siege immediately cut off every utility power electricity gas water everything make the conditions so unlivable that even if they did have food and whatever it's not going to do them any good see and my my thing too would have been use those those armored vehicles to push yourself in there i'm setting up heat lamps outside i you're already in the in the desert of texas no AC and I'm I'm setting up fucking heat lamps outside make it is and again that is and everybody that to all our listeners yes that sounds very harsh but that's a negotiation tactic okay standard you want yeah you want you make it so unlivable you start talking this is unbearable well you know Dave if you let if you if you tell some of your people to get the heck out of there like just again, he controls these people. What for better or for worse, they they're gonna do what he tells them to do. He's like, we would like all those people to get out of there, or like a certain number of them get out. I'll turn the lights on, or I'll turn those heat lamps off. I'll do whatever. I'll make you so comfortable, right up until the moment I come in and arrest you. Yeah. So, these are negotiation tactics. Are they kind of cruel? Are they kind of oh, how could you do that to those poor children? not killing them no it's making it uncomfortable but again you but there is also this is where caleb said this is where they just didn't understand this isn't a standard negotiate uh hostage thing david koresh did not walk into the lobby of a bank of america and take a whole bunch of people hostage all right more or less these people are this is their home they want to be there so you're coming at this in the wrong angle this isn't 
a hostage or aren't people david crush isn't hold isn't really holding a gun to these people's heads and forcing them to stay they want to stay because you're making because you kind of are reinforcing their beliefs that the end times are here the armies of the antichrist have come to kill us i must defend myself in the name of god yeah so attorney general reno had specifically directed that no pyrotechnic devices be used in the assaults. Between 1993 and 1999, FBI spokesmen denied, even under oath, the use of any sort of pyrotechnic devices during the assault. However, pyrotechnic Flight Right CS gas grenades had been found on the rubble immediately following the fire. In 1999, FBI spokesmen backtracked, saying that they had in fact used the grenades, but then contended they had only been used during an early morning attempt to penetrate a covered water-filled construction pit 40 yards away and were not fired in the building. As such, the FBI stated that the pyrotechnic devices were unlikely to have contributed to the fire. When the FBI's documents were turned over to Congress for an investigation in 1994, the page listing the use of the pyrotechnic devices was missing. The failure for six years to disclose the use of pyrotechnics despite her specific directive led Reno to demand an investigation. Senior FBI official told Newsweek that as many as 100 FBI agents had known about the use of pyrotechnics, but no one spoke up until 1999. Um, and this, again, is what we talk about where everybody's got to kind of has each other's back um, despite anything. It was basically nobody talked until Janet Reno said, you all talk or you're fired and going to prison. And then everybody started talking. Yeah. It's funny how that happens, huh? Um, the FBI had planted surveillance devices in the walls of the building, which captured several conversations the government claims are evidence that the Davidian started the fire. The recordings were imperfect and many times difficult to understand, and the two transcripts that were were made had difference differences at many points according to reporter diana fuentes when the fbi's april 19th tapes were played in court during the branch davidian trials few people heard what the fbi audio expert claimed to hear the tapes were filled with noise and voices only occasionally were discernible the words were faint some courtroom observers said that they heard it some didn't the Branch Davidians had given ominous warnings involving a fire on several occasions. This may or may not have been indicative of the Branch Davidians' future actions, but was the basis for the conclusion of Congress that the fire was started by the Branch Davidians, absent any other potential source of ignition. This was before the FBI admission that the pyrotechnics were used, but a year-long investigation by the Office of the Special Counsel after the admission, nonetheless reached the same conclusion, and no further congressional investigations followed. During 1999, deposition for civil suits by Branch Davidian survivors, fire survival Graham Craddock was interviewed. He stated that he saw some Branch Davidians moving about a dozen one-gallon cans of fuel so that they would not be run over by armored vehicles. Heard talk of pouring fuel outside the building and after the fire had started, something that sounded like light the fire from another individual. Professor, uh, Professor Kenneth Newport's book, The Branch Davidians of Waco, attempts to prove that the starting of the fire themselves was pre-planned and consistent with the Branch Davidians' theology. He cites as evidence the above-mentioned recordings of the FBI during the siege, testimonials of survivors 
Clyde Doyle and Graham Craddock and the buying of diesel fuel one more one month before the siege started. Now, this is completely possible. Um, people that have these religious beliefs, they it's almost like a fire and brimstone. Like we would mm-hmm. rather go out in a lake of fire. This this fire is is the fire of God. This is going to consume our bodies and blah, 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 which is probably what they were told. Now, you in here you have one of the Branch Davidian survivors saying that he heard the Davidians start the fire. So why would, if it was, if it did not happen, why would he say that it did? He has no reason to go against the divinity they're dead yeah so it's also a matter of what he saw i mean who you know people see things from different angles they see from one angle it looks like this from another this who knows maybe he maybe at the point control inside of it had broken down maybe david koresh had was doing his thing and other people were doing their other thing we don't know um this is also the inherent problem this this really is one of the roots problems of the whole the whole tobacco nobody knew anything nobody knew what was going on in there and they were making assumptions and guesses and calling it fact when in reality they were they were working in the dark so were they they bought diesel okay what does that mean that means nothing it does i was going to bring this up it does considering the fact that they never left the compound. Why do they need diesel fuel? Guess what? Generators don't run on diesel fuel. That is true. They, they run on normal unleaded gas. So why do you need the diesel fuel? What do you have that requires diesel? Uh, there is there. They have nothing. They, they were self-sufficient. Yeah, they went to into the city every once in a while, but from all accounts, they used a van which did gas. not use diesel fuel. I don't know any van that uses ga- uh, diesel fuel. Uh, one, some of the bigger ones, some of the bigger like Fords do, um, hmm. but those those are usually converted anyways. Um, but typically, like they have no reason to buy all this diesel fuel, especially. What do you say? One uh, a dozen one-gallon cans. I yeah. don't know. That's a little. Why do you have a dozen one-gallon cans? If you are, if you are, trying to be self-sufficient, and all of that. Number one, the first thing you're going to buy is one of those big, big gas tanks that sits on your property. That, that oh, you yeah. feel from. They're, they they had the money to do that. They would have bought that. Why are they in in, in individual one gallon cans? Unless they were they were planning on buying some vehicles that would need it, but need diesel. But again, though, they, they never leave the compound. This is true. They have no like need to leave the compound. Everything's there that they need, um, and usually Koresh didn't let them leave the compound anyway. So. I I personally, my, this is my sole opinion that this was the plan that if shit hits the fan, 
we are going to just set everything on fire because it's going to remove any evidence. Whether they intended to be inside the fire is one thing. But Man. I believe that their goal before the siege and before the the gas was in was they were going to take a gallon to each of their buildings. We don't know exactly how many buildings there were, but probably safe to say there there's a dozen buildings. A I ga- I really see a gallon for each building. I mean, I've also I've seen pictures. I, I haven't seen a lot of pictures of it. I was always under the impression this is just one big massive building. No, so it's they had they had numerous. So this this was a full compound. So they, from my understanding, they had like a chapel. They also had living quarters and things like that that were converted. Um, as far as as far as I know, they had there was multiple buildings. Uh, I'm looking at photos right now. It looks like it. No, it looks like they were. It was one big massive building, or at least it, it may have been. Um, they were all kind of clustered together. Um, so. But that's still. But your your idea does hold merit if you spread it out within various parts yes. of the building. So I'm ass- because this is this is a it's a big building. Um, yeah, I'm assuming that's very. Pop- you're looking at. I just googled the image. This one. Yep, that's it. Yeah. So if we so- look at this. You have yes, it's one big building, but number one, you can see the quote unquote tank. Um, but if you if we were to break this down into individual buildings, the way that the the roofs are built, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah. You, hey, they had a swimming pool. Yeah, they did. And it looks like one of those beach ones too, where it's really shallow and goes deep. Yeah. Um, which, nice. when we get our property, that we're going to build one like that. Um, Damn right we are. So, yeah, so that that is what I think would happen. It was the plan was to take those 12 cans and distribute them throughout the property and set everything on fire. That now removes all evidence i mean yeah based on what i've just been what on that and what i'm seeing because i was not aware of the diesel of the gas cans and the diesel or i just assume survivalist stuff i'm not a survivalist so i don't uh, i don't know what 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 is in a survivalist you know go-to thing um i don't think these guys are suicidal like in the no. terms of like jim jones I mean, just based on Christian beliefs, suicide's a sin. A willful suicide in the sense of not of like trying to escape justice from what I was taught in church and in Catholic schools. You know, suicide like that is a sin. Now, obviously, trying to escape bodily pain and, you know, these guys, or as we see in here, um, they're literally trapped in the building and they're about to be burned alive and they decided to find it to expedite their deaths that i was always taught that that's not technically a suicide in the sense of like drink the kool-aid um but 
this kind of tells me that that's i think maybe they may have been up to some nefarious like criminal things because why would if what's what's the need to burn to to hide evidence hide evidence of what so that's speculation on my part it it kind of casts a little bit of a question mark like hmm what are you doing there that you need that you would possibly need to if that's in fact what they were planning on to burn everything to cover evidence yeah and so here look really quick i found these they are the actual floor plans of the waco compound mm. there's the first floor so if you look they definitely would have needed oh uh, they would have needed somehow to spread it out one central thing would not floor. have done it yeah so yeah so it's it's really cool if anybody wants to see this um it's actually on the atf's website they have a a whole remembering waco thing um and it's operation trojan horse is what this was so you can you can go see that on the atf's website which is really cool um that's a stupid name for an operation trojan horse it's because they had a guy on the inside remember that's they so had an undercover oh agent. i know Oh, I so, know. I still, all right. still think it's stupid. So, FBI received contradictory reports on the possibility of Koresh's suicide and was not sure whether he would commit suicide. Evidence made them believe that there was no possibility of mass suicide, with Koresh and Schneider repeatedly denying to the negotiators that they had plans to commit mass suicide and people leaving the compound saying that they had seen no preparations for such a thing. There was a possibility that some of his followers would join Koresh if he decided to commit suicide. According to Alan A. Stone's report, during the siege, the FBI used an incorrect psychiatric perspective to evaluate Branch Davidian's responses, which caused them to over-rely on Koresh's statements that they would not commit suicide. According to Stone, this incorrect evaluation caused the FBI to not ask pertinent questions to Koresh and to others on the compound about whether they were planning a mass suicide. A more pertinent question would have been, what will you do if we tighten the noose around the compound in a show of overwhelming power and use CS gas to force you to come out? Stone wrote, The tactical arm of federal law enforcement may conventionally think that the other side as a band of criminals or as a military force or, generically, as the aggressor. But the Branch Davidians were an unconventional group in an exalted, disturbed, and desperate state of mind. They were devoted to David Koresh as the Lamb of God. They were willing to die defending themselves in an apocalyptic ending and, in the alternative, to kill themselves and their children. However, these were neither psychiatrically depressed, suicidal people, nor cold-blooded killers. They were ready to risk death as a test of their faith. The psychology of such behavior, together with its religious significance for the Branch Davidians, was mistakenly ev evaluated if not simply ignored by those responsible for the FBI strategy of tightening the noose. The overwhelming show of force was not working in the way the tacticians supposed. It did not provoke the Branch Davidians to surrender, but it may have provoked David Koresh to order the mass suicide. Now, I'm not a psychologist. However, I did study a lot of psychological things when I was in when I was a cop um, I do not even for religious reasons I do not see 
David Koresh committing suicide. He's too full of himself. Mm-hmm. The the Lamb of God will not commit suicide. No. Which is why it was a murder suicide. Because somebody else can kill him, so he doesn't go to prison, like his right hand did. But mm-hmm. he will not kill himself. There's no possible way. I do not think that a mass suicide would have happened here. This isn't Jim Jones. There, there was no triggers for a mass suicide where when we look at Jonestown, we see constant practicing of the mass suicide. We did not see this here. There, I do not think it's possible for a mass suicide in this. Not really, no. The only the only suicide that happened was when they were literally facing the flames. That yeah. was literally it. Yeah. And then and at that point, who would really blame them? Yeah. So, the Oklahoma City bombing, which we will discuss actually next after this, on April 19, 1995, caused the media to revisit many of the questionable aspects of the government's actions at Waco. And many Americans who previously supported those actions being began asking for an investigation of them. By 1999, as a result of certain aspects of the documentaries discussed below, as well as allegations made by advocates for Branch Davidians during litigation, public opinion held that the federal government had engaged in serious misconduct at Waco. A Time magazine poll conducted on August 26, 1999, for example, indicated that 61% of the public believed that the federal law enforcement officials started the fire at the Branch Davidian complex. In September 1999, Attorney General Reno appointed former U.S. Senator John C. Danforth as special counsel to investigate the matter. In in particular, the special counsel was directed to investigate charges that government agents started or spread the fire at the Mount Carmel complex, directed gunfire at the Branch Davidians, and unlawfully employed the armed forces of the United States. A year-long investigation ensued, during which the Office of Special Counsel interviewed 1,001 witnesses reviewed over 2.3 million pages of documents, and examined thousands of pounds of physical evidence. In the final report to the Deputy Attorney General concerning the 1993 confrontation at the Mount Carmel Complex, Waco, Texas, of November 8, 2000, Special Counsel Danforth concluded that the allegations were meritless. The report found, however, that certain government employees had failed to disclose during litigation against the Branch Davidians the use of pyrotechnic devices at the complex and had obstructed the special counsel's investigation. Disciplinary actions were pursued against those individuals, meaning they got a slap on the wrist and were told not to do it again. Mm. That's all at that, that point, they were probably... Yeah, and probably at that point, they are all probably ready to fire. And- yeah. So... Yeah. Allegations that the government started the fire were largely based on an FBI agent's on an FBI agents having fired three pyrotechnic tear gas rounds, which are delivered with a charge that burns. The special counsel concluded that the rounds did not start or contribute to the spread of the fire based on their finding that the FBI fired the rounds nearly four hours before the fire started at a concrete pit partially filled with water, 75 feet away and downwind from the main living quarters of the complex. Okay, so Ben and I have used these items before um these items do not burn for a long time basically the pyrotechnic part is used to help propel and then eject the cs gas 
This lasts for maybe 10 to 15 seconds for the pyrotechnic part. For these to be fired, there's no way it takes four hours to light something on fire with these. No, no. So it kind of seals the deal that the government did not start the fires. Um, <coughs> so the special counsel noted, by contrast, that recorded interceptions of Branch Davidian conversations included such statements as, David said we have to get the fuel on, and so we light it first when they've come in with the tank, right? Right as they're coming in. So, some of the Branch Davidians who survived the fire acknowledged that other Branch Davidians started the fire. FBI agents witnessed Branch Davidians pouring fuel and igniting a fire, and noted these observations uh, contemporar contemporaneously. Say that five times fast. Lab analysis found accelerants on the clothing of Branch Davidians, and investigators found deliberately punctured fuel cans and a homemade torch at the site. Based on this evidence and testimony, the special counsel concluded that the fire was started by the Branch Davidians. This kind of seals what we were talking about before with the multiple cans. They punctured the cans. They, some of them poured fuel on themselves. Um, but it looks like they, they weren't, some of them may be doing it to kill themselves, but it looks like it was really a tactic of trying to keep them out. Because if I mm -hmm. if I'm going in tactically and a fire starting, uh, uh, I'm backing out. I'm leaving. Yeah, probably in all likelihood, they had the cans for something else, and they're like, let's use this. They're not going to run into a fire. Unfortunately, we're not. As I said before, we're not dealing with people who know yeah. how what they're doing. These yeah. are a bunch of religious people living in a commune. They thought this would be a good idea. It literally blew up in their face. Yeah. Charges that government agents fired shots onto the into the complex on April 19, 1993, were based on forward-looking infrared FLIR uh, video recorded by Night Stalker's aircraft. FLIR is what is used in most law enforcement helicopters. It is a beautiful thing. It uses infrared to track suspects. Um, I will tell you right now, if you're running from law enforcement and you hear a helicopter, you're not getting away because this FLIR will find you no matter what. Um, these tapes showed 57 flashes with some occurring around government vehicles that were operating near the complex. The office of special counsel conducted a field test of FLIR technology on March 19th, 2000, to determine whether gunfire caused the flashes. The testing was conducted under a protocol agreed to and signed by attorneys and experts for the Branch Davidians and their families, as well as for the government. Analysis of the shape, duration, and location of the flashes indicated that they resulted from a reflection of debris on or around the complex rather than gunfire. Additionally, an independent expert review of photography taken at the scene showed no people at or near the points from which the flashes emanated. Interviews of Branch Davidians, government witnesses, filmmakers, writers, and advocates for Branch Davidians found that none had witnessed any government gunfire on April 19th. None of the Branch Davidians who died on that day displayed evidence of having been struck by high-velocity rounds, as would be expected had they been shot from outside of the complex by government sniper rifles or other assault weapons. 
Given this evidence, the special counsel concluded that the claim that the government gunfire occurred on April 19, 1993, amounted to an unsupportable case based entirely upon flawed technological assumptions. Special counsel considered whether use of active duty military at Waco violated the Posse Comitatus Act or the Military Assistance to Law Enforcement Act. These statutes generally prohibit direct military participation in law enforcement functions, but do not preclude indirect support such as lending equipment, training in the use of equipment, offering expert advice, and providing equipment maintenance. Special counsel noted that the military provided extensive loans of equipment to the ATF and FBI, including, among other things, two tanks, not really tanks, the offensive capability of which had been disabled. Additionally, the military provided limited advice, training, and medical support. The special counsel concluded that these actions amounted to indirect military assistance within the bounds of the applicable law. The Texas National Guard, in its state status, also provided substantial loans of military equipment, as well as performing reconnaissance flights over the Branch Davidian complex. Because the Posse Comitatus Act does not apply to the National Guard in its state status, Special Counsel determined the National Guard lawfully provided its assistance. So, for those that are confused by that, basically every state has a National Guard. You're either Army or Air Force National Guard. Um, bef- yes, you are part of the of the American government. You are part of the Army or the Air Force. However, you respond and take orders from your your head of state of your state and before taking government actions which means uh, what most people see the national guard is in times of emergencies um uh, in florida national guard deploys a lot for hurricanes uh ben just had to do it not that long ago for the blizzards Mm -hmm. in buffalo um so they're used a lot for emergency situations and in this case they're being used by the states, not the federal government. So that means that they are in their state status. So you, you have two things. You have a state status and then you have a federal status. Your state status means that you are operating f- under the, gover- the governor of that state, uh, in this case in the state of Texas. Now if you go in, go out of your state status... That is when you deploy to another country or um, when you are working on something for the federal government. Um, But typically, most National Guards do stay in their state statuses. Um, Ramsey Clark, a former U.S. Attorney General who represented several Branch Davidian survivors and relatives in a civil lawsuit, said that the report failed to address the obvious. History will clearly record, I believe, that the assaults on the Mount Carmel Church Center remain the greatest domestic law enforcement tragedy in the history of the United States. Now, I just... I kind of agree in that. Oh, in yeah. That, in the sentiment of it. Yeah. Um, We're going to go over some numbers, and then we're going to... F- uh, some equipment and manpower of the government agencies and then the Branch Davidians before we close. So, 
In the raid on February 28th, 75 federal agents, ATF and FBI, three Sikorsky UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters crewed by 10 Texas National Guard counter-drug personnel as distraction during the raid and filming. Ballistic protection equipment, fire retardant clothing, regular flashlights, regular cameras, flash photography, pump action shotguns, and flash and grenades, 9mm handguns, 9mm MP5 submachine guns, 5.56 NATO M16 rifles, and a 308 bolt action sniper rifle. That was all for that very first raid. For the siege, March 1st through April 18th, hundreds of federal agents, two Bell UH-1 Iroquois helicopters, which are one of my favorite helicopters ever. Um, then assault April 19th, hundreds of federal agents, military vehicles with their normal weapon systems removes, nine to 10 M3 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, four to five M728 combat engineering vehicles armed with CS gas, two M1A1 Abrams main battle tanks, and one M88 tank retriever. Two Abrams. There. Um, support one Britain Norman Defender surveillance aircraft, a number of Texas National Guard personnel for maintenance of military vehicles and training on the use of vehicles and their support vehicles, Humvees and flatbed trucks. Surveillance from the Texas National Guard counter-drug UC-26 surveillance aircraft and from Alabama National Guard. Three soldiers from Delta Force to serve as observers, also present during the assault. Two senior U.S. Army officers as advisors. Two members of the British Army's 22nd SAS Regiment as observers. Oh, yeah. And 50-plus men in total. They had fucking SAS would... there. And, and Delta Force. They if literally the, all you had to do take those three Delta Force, take those two SAS, send them fucking in there. That's it. I, I probably would have done a lot better. It would have been game over, done. Like go eliminate the threat. What what you guys have to understand when you talk about SAS, which is a special air service. These guys are the there is, best of the best. There is no there is better. there is no this is, is this no is comparison. from American military members saying that there is no better military operator than the SAS. Not too long ago in uh, Kenya, a few years ago, there was a terrorist attack at a mall in in Nairobi. And literally one SAS operator just happened to be driving by and on a shopping trip to buy his wife some, like, souvenirs from his, like, short little training mission to Nairobi. This man literally just was like, uh-oh, spot a bother. And he literally just stopped, parked his vehicle, opened his trunk, grabbed his gear, which included his tack vest, his and uh and his weapon and like what all right and just went at it and helps and help and help end the crisis there yeah well, they, one dude who was just there to shop for his family and he took out and he helped take out a terrorist attack in Kenya what god's name could have happened if he if if these guys had just been sent there hey i need you to go into that compound and um fix this exactly so plus delta force which we've talked about them before 
they are America's premier anti-terrorist unit. Um, now, the Branch Davidians were well-stocked with small arms, possessing 305 total firearms, including numerous rifles, semi-auto, AK-47s, and AR-15s, shotguns, revolvers, and pistols. 46 semi-automatic firearms modified to fire in fully automatic mode. 22 AR-15 um, rifles, 20 AK-47 rifles, 2 HK SP-89s, and 2 M11-9. Um, then Texas Rangers reported at least 16 AR-15 rifles, 2 AR-15 loader receivers modified to fire in fully automatic mode, 39 auto-sear devices used to convert semi-automatic weapons into automatic weapons, parts for fully automatic AK-47 and M16 rifles, 30 round mags and 100 round mags for M16 and AK-47 rifles, pouches to carry large ammunition magazines, substantial quantities of ammunition in various sizes. Other items found at the compound included about 1.9 million rounds of cooked-off ammo. Cooked-off ammo meaning fired. Done. 1.9 million rounds. Grenade launcher parts, flare launchers, gas masks and chemical warfare suits, night vision equipment, hundreds of practice hand grenade holes and components, including more than 200 inert M31 practice rifle grenades, more than 100 modified M21 practice hand grenade bodies, and 219 grenade safety pins and 243 grenade safety levers found after the fire. Kevlar helmets and bulletproof vest, 88 lower receivers for the AR-15 rifle, and approximately 15 sound suppressors or silencers. Um, Texas Rangers... Uh, the Treasury Reports list 21 silencers. Texas Rangers report that at least 6... Items had been mislabeled and were actually 40 millimeter grenades or flashbang grenades from manufacturers who sold those models to ATF or FBI exclusively. Former Branch Davidian Donald Buns testified he had manufactured silencers under direct orders for Koresh. That right there, those silencers, those are federally illegal. Mm-hmm. That, that right there. But the ATF knew that the Branch Davidians had a pair of 50 cal rifles. So they asked for Bradley armored vehicles, which could resist that caliber. During the siege, Koresh said that he had weapons bigger than 50 caliber rifles and that he could destroy the Bradleys. So they were supplemented with two Abrams tanks and five M728 vehicles. Texas Rangers recovered at least two 50 caliber weapons from the remains of the compound. Whether the Branch of Indians actually fired the 50 caliber rounds during the raids or the assault is disputed. Various groups supporting gun control, such as Handgun Handgun Control Incorporated and the Violence Policy Center have claimed the Branch Davidians had fired 50 cal rounds, and they have cited this as one reason to ban these weapons. ATF claims such rifles were used against ATF agents the day of the search. Several years later, the General Accounting Office, in response to a request from Henry Waxman, released a briefing paper titled Criminal Activity Associated with 50 caliber Semiotic Rifles, that reported the ATF's claims that the Branch Davidians used 50 caliber rifles during the search. FBI hostage rescue team snipers reported citing one of the weapons readily identifiable by 
its distinctive muzzle brake during the siege. So, ATF had a good reason to raid the place. Yeah. And in the right hands, those weapons would have done insurmountable damage to the federal government. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder why the hell you needed silencers. That's you, that's and that, that's the, that's the thing is you don't. You also know. Is it cool to have a fifty cal? Yeah, like sure. if I had the option to buy a fifty cal, I would buy it. I really, it, but you it, don't just look at it. No, looking at this list, it, he was this ca- ready to this set up an army. Well, yeah, the, but not even, but not a really, this, he may have started like, okay, how do I, how do I set up a way to defend ourselves? You have the standard AKs and AR-15s, which is fine. Uh, and, but then you, then he used, that list kind of peters off into like, ooh, this looks cool. This is cool. Like the, Basically, uh, yeah. like the, like the submachine guns, the HK, um, the the MP5s and stuff, the silencers. Uh, wh- what are you trying to make here, dude? Uh, a tactical team? Yeah. Your own tactical team? That's kind of weird. The 50 caliber sniper rifles. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. He saw that at a at a right at a gun show and decided I want to. I gotta have them. Like I'll tell you right now, if I get the chance to buy a 50 cal, I'm buying one. Yeah, I mean they're cool. It's like they're you said, awesome. they're cool. What what practical use are there? Uh, right now, none. Not, right in now, the, you're right. In the future, I probably will have one. Yeah, but this this really strikes me. And then, of course, you got the silencers again. That's kind of it's kind of shady. I don't. I know some people will use them because they're worried about you know noises. Like, okay, well. People don't want to hear us shoot. We want to shoot the guns, but nobody wants us to wants to hear us shoot the guns. So let's make some sniper, some silencers from it. I know that in England, uh, those who do have the to have you know basically the permits to use guns have to do so with the silencer. Like here, we look at silencers as like <gasps> silencers. What are you trying to do? Yeah, Be silencers assassins? Are federally illegal here. But in England, it's almost like, uh, where's your silencer? Yeah. Uh, You're just going to start shooting these all willy-nilly? Yeah. What, think, of, think of your neighbors. And for, they don't want to hear that. For everybody that doesn't understand, you in the United States, you have to possess a special license to have a silenced weapon. Um, yeah. And it's not given out to just anybody. Your, and of course, when we say your background checks, and also for those who are out there who are gun, better gun experts than we are, yes, we we're talking about suppressors. You can't, nothing can yes. totally silence a gun. Correct. So, sorry for the for for the misnomer on there. We are just put it in the in the statements. in our notes. So. Yeah, so we are talking about suppressors. Again, though, still kind of shady. You have them, and this is coming from two very. Yes very pro second amendment advocates who are you like don't you don't need a silencer no i don't get me wrong i'm looking at these amount of guns and i'm like one cool. day i will own that many guns yes i would like that 
but at the same time, I will make sure I buy them legally. Yes. So, with that, uh, last minute statements? Um, could have been avoided. ATF, you, your, your operation was compromised. Why are you going forward? Yeah. Why are you going forward? David Koresh, who is probably in hell, as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned, if you could, um, just wait, sit down and wait. The cops are coming, not the Antichrist, nothing like that. The cops are coming. You don't send your guys to take up defensive positions. You started the, you started a fight. You were not equipped to, to handle. That being said, the government overstepped in this position. I understand. I, I I've never really truly believed a lot of the conspiracies that, and some of these are out are really out there that. You know, you had people running out of the building and they were getting mowed down by machine gun fire from the FBI, um, or anything like that. Or the FBI sent tanks in and were shooting flamethrowers, napalm, into the compound and killing these poor these people. Never believed that. That's just, people wanted to believe what they wanted to believe in light of Ruby Ridge and everything else. Um, but you, is, there's a very old saying, um, if every, if all you carry is a hammer, everything is going to look, everything is going to be in is 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 some you're going to look at everything as something to be hammered is a be hammered. I screwed up that saying, but basically, if if all you are carrying is a hammer, everything will look like a nail. Yes, thank you. Sorry, my my <laughs> my wife. His ADHD goes nuts. It, it really is. But basically it is. The FBI, they treated this like a hostage thing with a crazed cult or a crazed Looney Tune holding these people hostage. That was not it. This was different. And they couldn't, they couldn't or they wouldn't or both understand that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that about sums that up um well yeah so that is waco um next week we will be getting into the oklahoma city bombing uh kind of going in order here and then obviously this is going past september where we want um i'm for october i I we're gonna get into some more serial killers for Halloween, so I think that'll be a fun thing for Halloween. So, um, but yeah, I want to thank everybody for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Please remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seats, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>